Just before we begin, I've just started to release new stories to my Substack, so if you'd like to read the latest new ghost stories, just visit davidpaulnixon.substack.com. How many people do you think have lived in your home before you? How many have moved in, moved out, grown up and grown old there? Perhaps even died there? If you're in a new build, of course, the answer's none or not many. But for the rest of us, we probably have no idea. Then perhaps we'd prefer it to stay that way. When we get the keys to our new home, we like to think we're getting a clean slate. Even if the place needs fixing up, it's now ours to control and make our own. Hopefully the survey has picked up on anything serious. You know you'll find something once you move in. Light switches that don't work, damp showing under the paint, doors that won't close. Just small things, nothing too concerning. You take it on trust that there's nothing more serious lurking beneath the floorboards or under the patio. Our homes are a unique record of us. They show signs of our character and the challenges we're facing at each point in our lives. Whether it's the mess of young people learning to look after themselves for the first time, or the chaos of parents balancing life with a new child, right up to the elderly living in a time capsule of years gone past. They show the signs of us growing, of us changing, struggling, prevailing, and of us decaying. Have you ever visited the home of someone who could no longer cope? Someone whose life is completely broken down? A home in disrepair, with rubbish piled up to the ceiling, things growing rotten, signs of infestation. The kind of repulsive disorder that makes you wonder how a human being could possibly live like this. It's like seeing someone's despair made manifest. It's hard to calculate the kind of pain or illness that would destroy a soul, yet it can be writ large over an interior, an infection that spread from the mind and then from room to room, a state of decay so palpable it's stacked against the walls and it's hanging in the fetid air, the fallout from a life in ruins made horrifically tangible. But these homes too must pass from one person to another. The rubbish is taken out, the windows are thrown open, surfaces are painted, the wallpaper is stripped, the carpets are pulled up, all the signs of past despair are removed or covered over. The house is offered as presentable and clean, a place of great potential for a new occupant and new family. You just have to hope that the decay is gone and can no longer spread. A home doesn't have to have something buried beneath the patio to hide a terrible secret. And sometimes you don't have to do any digging for a secret to rise to the surface once again. My name is David Paul Nixon, and this is the New Ghost Stories podcast, where we dig into the New Ghost Stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. In the years since I began my hunt for Britain's lost ghost stories, I tried to resist the urge to theorise. I'm not a scientist or a psychologist. I'm not even an investigator with years and years of professional experience, though I pride myself that I've learned a few things along the way. The role I've set for myself is one of being a listener and a recorder, and I try to stick to that role. With each new ghost story I present, I've asked readers and listeners to consider whether what they're being told is true or false. But you know, in some ways, it doesn't really matter. 
You don't have to believe in the supernatural to find these stories fascinating. Because if they're not stories of encounters with ghosts, then what are they? What causes someone to experience such things and believe such things have happened to them? One of the reasons I've tried not to speculate is that I never wanted to bias my approach. I never wanted to enter into a conversation with the mindset that what I was hearing was going to be one thing or another. I wanted only to confirm that what the subject was telling me was something they really believed, and that this wasn't some obvious deception or delusion. But over time, having spoken now to hundreds of people, it would be very difficult for me to not draw some conclusions. It is, after all, only natural to speculate. One thing that many of the people I've spoken to have in common is that they were experiencing some kind of personal crisis when they had their encounter with the supernatural. And what happened to them was something that occurred either at the point when they reached the apex of some internal conflict, or something that simply collided with them while they were in the midst of a crisis. Something more random that hit them at the worst possible time. It would seem a safe assumption then to make that when in great periods of stress, this altered state of mind allows us to experience things that we would not otherwise be able to experience. This is an idea that actually suits both skeptics and believers. For skeptics, it suggests that these supernatural experiences are physical responses to being put under a great mental strain. Either parts of our mind are behaving strangely to resolve the crisis, or that the weight of the strain itself is disrupting the way we perceive events. Whereas for believers, it suggests that we have within us hidden potential, parts of our primitive mind that have become inaccessible, but that can be activated when we're pressured to let go of everyday constraints. Of course, the problem with this kind of theorising is its generality. You'll come across evidence that just doesn't fit this pattern. Take as a case in point the subject of today's story. Often when I meet people, they're about to relive events that have caused them great stress. When we are introduced, I can see that they're feeling uncomfortable and have to try to put them at ease as much as I can. This was not the case when I met this subject. They were as mystified today as to what had occurred to them as they were back then. And as you listen to this story, you'll hear that her life was not by any means without complications. She was going through some important transitions in her life. But those transitions were things that most of us will face. They were normal troubles, she was under no immense pressure, and yet she witnessed something bizarre and frightening anyway. I could empathise with the distress she experienced as events unfolded, but this wasn't an excavation of past life troubles. This was a freak occurrence in her life. Based on what she told me, it would seem to suggest that the cause of events was not internal but external. Not about a mind that's haunted, but rather a place. Something from the past, reaching out to the present. Which is something entirely different. But I shan't speculate any further. And it's true that healthy minds can also be subject to unhealthy thoughts and actions. And to self-deception. As always, it will be left for you to decide what to make of what follows. I present for you new ghost stories case number 50. Knock Down Ginger. The following story has been shared under an agreement that respects the right of the subject to remain anonymous. Certain names, dates and locations have been changed to protect that anonymity. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the places, people or events that feature in this story, I ask that you not reveal any knowledge or information publicly out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. This story is narrated by a female character.
Nan was a difficult person, always complaining and always moaning. I'll be honest and say that I never really liked her very much. That might sound harsh, and I wouldn't want to speak ill of the dead, but Dad would probably agree. He was upset when she died, but he was relieved too. I remember her being awkward and uptight growing up, but since Grandpa died, she'd gotten even worse. On the night before her funeral, Dad was telling me how he thought she had gone mad. She hadn't changed her life at all after Grandpa died. She did all the things that she'd done when he was alive. She didn't make any changes. Sometimes she'd even wait or call for him, forgetting that he was gone. But if you asked her about it, she'd deny having done it. She just got more difficult, becoming more obsessive about her routines and insisting everything be done just right or else she'd complain, shout, grumble, get angry. Nothing was allowed to disrupt her routines. That was why I hardly ever saw her in those last few years. It was difficult to talk to her. She never had the time. If you called her, you were always interrupting her. She couldn't cope with spontaneity. If you phoned her out of the blue, she couldn't understand that impulse. She'd always ask, what have you called for? You couldn't just feel like it. There had to be a reason why you were interrupting her precious routine. She wouldn't talk to you then. She'd tell you that she was too busy to talk and get all agitated, tell you to call back later, but she wouldn't be any more welcoming then either. She just didn't have time for anyone else. You were always in the way. Once I wanted to stay over, I had an interview at Falmouth College in Cornwall and she lived close by in Penryn. I asked her and it left her all of a fluster, almost in a panic. She was busy, this wasn't a good time, why hadn't I called earlier? I called a whole month ahead, but she was already fretting about not having enough food in the house, or it being the same day she was supposed to go shopping or something. I just didn't go in the end, it was too much of a headache. I didn't go to college that year anyway, I took a gap year and went travelling. It was on my travels that me and Alan met. Our group started travelling together and one thing led to another and, well, we're settled down now, married. Nan didn't make it to the wedding. I remember Dad being quite upset about that. More than I was, Alan's parents were enough of a challenge and I hadn't spoken to Nan in years at that point. She made it to the christening at least, although she didn't seem happy to be there. I think Dad might have literally dragged her. She muttered a lot, kept saying what a distance it was and how much she'd been put out. She didn't stay long after lunch. That was the last I saw of her or heard from her. She died four or five years later in her sleep. The cleaner found her. Dad was upset but hardly devastated. There was no will. All her belongings went straight to Dad, including her house, a beautiful Penryn townhouse. Dad dealt with all the funeral and estate arrangements himself. He was never good at accepting help. He'd inherited some of her stubbornness. He got quite a bit of help from Nan's cleaner, at least. She was the only one who saw her day to day. She'd been with her a couple of years, a record by Nan's standards. She couldn't get on with cleaners. Everything had to just be perfect. Everything had to be in its right place. They couldn't take her fussiness. There was a period when every time I spoke to Dad he seemed to be complaining that another cleaner had come and gone. She kept accusing them of stealing and deliberately moving things around. But the thing was, Nan was fussy and didn't like change. But she couldn't remember things either. She'd move stuff and then forget about it. But this last cleaner was a retired hospital nurse, so she dealt with worse and knew how to handle difficult folk like Nan. Anyway, 
It was about six months after she died that Dad offered us her house. I was flabbergasted. He was offering it to us for free, as a gift. He said he wanted to give us something, and he knew we had struggled to get a mortgage. We were still renting in London at the time. He thought it would be good for Jessica, too. He didn't think we should bring her up in the city. And frankly, neither did we. We hadn't planned it that way, but money kept getting in the way. We couldn't get enough together for a mortgage, and Alan was afraid about getting work away from his contacts in London. By the time Nan died, Jess had already started school and we had started to think about moving away again. Well, Alan mostly. I knew I'd miss living in the city. I'd been living in London since I was a kid and I just couldn't imagine living out in the country. I mean, what do people do out there? I know that sounds stupid, but you just get to thinking like that when you're in London, like everything in the world revolves around it. I agreed that Jess would be better off going to school somewhere else. You hear bad things about city schools, and there's all that bad stuff about gangs and hoodies as they get older. But I'd already given up so much to be a mum, I hardly saw my friends anymore. I hardly got a chance to go out. Don't get me wrong, I never regretted being a parent. But I missed the excitement and the freedom, you know? Everything had moved so quickly with Alan, I sort of felt I'd missed out on a bit of my twenties. And then moving away from London seemed like I was finally settling down once and for all into my middle age. I'd only just started working again too, and it seemed like such a shame to give all that up already. Dad said we should go down there for a week and see what we thought. He was convinced that we'd love it there, and that kind of close-knit community would be perfect for Jessica. And the schools were good too, we'd heard. And Cornwall is beautiful. So it did sound appealing. And a free house? That was too good an offer to just pass up on. It was a good excuse for a holiday too. But Alan couldn't get the time off work because of project deadlines. We tried to work it out. I was determined to make it to a short break down there. Really get to know the place if I was going to move there. But we couldn't make it work with his schedule. Not for months anyway. In the end I decided to go down for a week and he would come down for a long weekend. So I packed our things and we set off. It's a long drive down there. If you've never done it you have no idea. You almost can't believe that the country goes on that far. You take the motorway for ages and ages and then you end up on long country carriageways that wind round through town after town, each one with pen or tray in the name. Beautiful though, all very healthy clean and healthy green, stunning views too, but only I got to enjoy it though, Jessica slept the whole journey. We'd never really been on a proper holiday since she was born, just a few short breaks. I knew she'd enjoy seeing the beach again. And proper sandy beaches too, not like the rocky one down at Brighton. I'd almost forgotten what Penryn was like. Picturesque, if a bit odd. It's all up the side of a hill, one small high street with a small scattering of shops, bakery, pharmacist, unusual number of hair salons. Oh, and a combined tattooist and sex toy shop. Just what every town needs. I remember as a child seeing druids in robes walking down the high street. That sort of thing probably still happened. You get a wide range of alternative types in places like Penryn. Yeah, a peculiar place. Lots of winding alleys and odd-shaped houses. Very improvised as towns go. It looked like it had all been built in blocks. Small bursts of construction, three or more houses, but they'd look a bit different from the ones before. A town like a patchwork quilt, but a pretty one. A bit odd, but quite pretty in its way. It feels like a small place at first because the high street is quite small, but actually it's not so small after all. There's this whole more modern estate hidden in a sort of valley behind the high street. Now there's also a development down by the harbour, 
expensive flats and other things being built down there, probably finished by now, but still being built when we were there. Nan's old place was down one of the roads that dipped down from the high street, sort of newer houses, but still in the old style, fairly even in the way they looked. Nan's was the one with the red door. I always remembered that. It was always bright and polished. I suppose good impressions start at your doorstep. I didn't like the smell when we arrived. Stale, musty air. But the place was very clean. It was only when you opened a cupboard or drawer that you realised the place was full of junk. She was one of those people who never threw anything away. I bet she knew where everything was, though. She probably knew where each piece of junk belonged. She just wouldn't have been able to get at it because of all the other junk on top of it. It was part of my agreement with Dad that I'd start to clear the place out. I don't think he cared really what we did with the stuff. Give it away, sell it or bin it. I don't think he wanted to go back there. Too full of bad memories for him, I expect. It is amazing how things flood back to you. One of the things that my nan always used to complain about was knock down Ginger, the old kid's game. Run up to a door, given a knock, and then run off. She made out that that used to happen all the time. Dad used to tell me about it, and even I remember hearing her complaining about it too. She was always going on about the neighbourhood kids anyway. Too noisy, too rude, too badly behaved, etc. But knockdown Ginger, that was the thing that she complained about the most. It made me smile, a grumpy, strange old lady like her. She was a born target for young boys, I suppose. Bad-tempered but harmless, like poking a toothless old dog with a stick. It barks but doesn't bite. The reason I remembered it so quickly after I arrived was that I had been there for no more than maybe 15 to 20 minutes before it happened to me. I was going through the cupboards, seeing if any of the tin food was worth keeping, when we got a knock on the door. I thought it must be a curious neighbour, but there was no one there, no one at all. I looked up and down the street, no sign of anyone. I thought to myself, the kids in this part of town must be pretty quick off the mark to pick up on me arriving so quickly. The house was just as nice as I'd remembered. Three bedrooms upstairs, large living room, dining room, with a porch and a small garden. Jessica liked that. Obviously she didn't have a garden in London. We had a minimal maintenance concrete yard with no sunlight. She particularly liked the pond, although I instantly had nightmares about her falling in and tried to keep her away from it. I had packed a Fireman Sam DVD to keep her busy, so I stuck it on while I explored the place and sorted out the bedrooms. Although the sheets would have been changed after she died, I still felt like I had to change them again just to be sure. I brought all my own sheets too. Nan had about a dozen I could have used, but they didn't seem to bend as much as I usually like my fabrics to. Practically starched, rigid. We were both pretty tired after the journey down, and I really didn't feel like cooking. There were a couple of fish and chip shops in the area, so he made do with that. Jess fell asleep watching EastEnders with me, and, after putting her to bed, felt like going down myself too. It was only ten o'clock when I turned the TV and the lights off. Not that late, but late enough to be spooked when there was another knock at the door. On my own and in a strange place, it made me tense very quickly. There was no peephole in the door, and the window next to it doesn't give you very much of a look around. Not if the person is stood just a bit to the right of the door. I couldn't see anyone, so I shouted, Hello? There was no answer. I opened it slowly and took a look outside. There was no one. I took a step out and looked up and down the street, but it was dead quiet, absolutely dead. Not a noise or anything. That made me feel pretty uncomfortable. I mean, sure, it's just a game, 
but it's a bit late for games, and I only just got there. Were they doing this every night, even when the house was empty? Surely they'd have heard about my nan dying, or would they? I suppose today, even in small towns, people don't talk to their neighbours. But it had been six months. They would have to have been so quiet, though. I didn't hear anything, not a footstep. Even though they would have had to have run away, wouldn't they? Where did they go, and how fast, and how quietly? It was weird, and made me feel pretty odd. I didn't sleep that well that night, although I think that that was probably something to do with the lumpy mattress I slept on. I wasn't sleeping in the main bedroom until we changed the bed, or at least the mattress. That was certainly where Nan had died. I wasn't keen on doing anything too serious straight away. Instead, I went shopping. Falmouth's the closest proper town to Penryn. It's walkable, but I took the bus anyway. Jess was pretty excited to see the sea and started pestering me to get her a bucket and spade. Nice town, busy but quaint. Lots of local stores, art centre, a couple of small supermarkets, some old-fashioned pubs, some bars. Not much of a club scene, as you'd expect. But we were probably a bit old for that anyway. Lots of students around, of course. It was good to see them. Made me feel like it wasn't just a place for pensioners and retirees. The beach was quite busy, but not too busy. Jess loved playing in the sand, and I brought myself a coffee and played with her and read my book while she went paddling at the edge of the water and built sandcastles. We had a lovely day, and she had a really good time. You forget just how good fresh air is when you're in the city. I wanted to walk back from the beach and take it all in, but Jess had tired herself out, so it was the bus back again. It was such a lovely day, but of course something had to happen to spoil it. I was going to make pasta for dinner. I'm not much of a cook, but I've forgotten the pasta sauce. Jess was fast asleep, so I thought it would be all right if I just ran up to the local shop and I'd be back before she was any the wiser. Just as I was about to leave, though, I couldn't find the house keys. I was sure I'd left them in the kitchen, but found them ages later on the dining room table. I wasn't sure how they'd got there. When I come to a new place, I always instinctively find a place to put my keys and always put them there, every time. I don't know how they ended up there. I wouldn't have put them there, and I didn't think Jess would have just moved them. Jess hadn't woken up, so I thought I'd still had time to run to the shop. But when I got there, there was this group of kids, teenagers, four of them. I heard them whispering and sniggering when I got in there, and what they said was not flattering. One of them came up close to me, pretending to look at milk in the fridge, and then he grabbed my bum. I turned around, shocked, and then another one of them came up to me and said, Sorry about them, love. Oi, leave the girl alone, all right? You want to be careful of guys like him? Here, let me walk you home. Keep you safe from these Muppets. I told them to fuck off. But of course, that only encouraged them. Would you have to be like that for? Here's me trying to help, and you got to start swearing at me. His mates were laughing idiotically. Leave it, mate. This lady's not for you. Then the shopkeeper tried to step in. He was Indian, and he told them to leave me alone. They said something to him that I won't repeat. After they told him to F off, he came from behind the counter and they knocked over a postcard stand in front of him and ran out. He apologised to me, not that it was his fault. As I left the shop, they were outside, just across the road. They shouted to me again. I just started to walk as fast as I could to get away from them. When I got back to the house, pretty flustered, Jess was still asleep, thankfully. I put the kettle on straight away and broke up the spaghetti for the pan. Then, of course, there was another knock on the door. Still angry, I didn't waste time. I ran straight forward and pulled it open. There was no one there yet again. Not in the mood for this stupidity. 
I ran down the steps into the road and yelled, Whoever's doing this, it's not funny. I looked up and down the road. No one answered. No one made themselves known. All was quiet, again. I walked back up the steps. Stupidly, I shouted, Do it again, and I'll call the police, which was like giving them encouragement to do it all over again. And sure enough, before we'd even finished dinner, there it was. Another knock at the door. I just ignored it. Best thing to do, just ignore it. If it was anyone important, which it shouldn't be since I'd only just got there, then they'd knock twice. I didn't sleep well that second night. I was too rattled by the kids in the shop and by the knocks on the door. It wasn't boding well, this trip to Cornwall. The place seemed nice, but so much trouble already. I tried to tell myself it was just a coincidence. You couldn't judge a place completely just because you'd had a couple of bad experiences with kids. Everyone else seemed nice. Lovely, in fact. I was pretty moody the next day. Not only was I tired, but things seemed to be missing. My toothbrush wasn't there. I couldn't find my towel. I asked Jessica if she'd touched them, and she said she hadn't. She did sometimes just pick things up and leave them somewhere else, but I really couldn't see what fascination my toothbrush would have for her now. It was a bad time to start feeling off as it was time to actually start doing some work. I got up and had some eggs and soldiers and sneaked a cigarette outside. I'd given them up, but once in a while, when I was feeling a bit tense, it helped me relax a little bit. I tried to keep it hidden from Jess, but she suddenly came through the patio door. I threw it down into a plant pot in a panic as she said, Mummy, there's someone at the door. Don't worry, sweetie, it's no one, just ignore it. But what if it's Daddy? I smiled. Daddy's still in London, sweetie. He won't be here till the day after tomorrow. Oh, she said. Well, I'm going to see who it is. I picked up the cigarette because Alan might spot it. He hates it when I smoke. There's no one there, Mummy. I know, sweetheart. Just ignore it if anybody knocks. It was really another nice day. Shame to spend it indoors going through cupboards. But I had to make a start. Jess wanted first, though, to take a look in the pond for some fish. Dad hadn't mentioned whether there was anything living in there or not, but it was so cloudy and murky we couldn't tell one way or another. Just as I was about to go back inside, I saw Jess by the stone wall, jumping up to see if there was anyone in the opposite garden. I asked her what she was doing, and she said she was trying to see if the boy was still hiding. She said that she'd seen a boy there yesterday, but he kept hiding behind the wall so she wouldn't see him. I looked into the next garden, and there was no one there. There were no toys there. It didn't seem like they would have a kid, but who could tell? I got to emptying things out, starting with the cupboard under the stairs, separating everything into three piles, stuff to bin, stuff to give away, and stuff to keep, which was the smallest pile. It was a miserable day to spend indoors. It was so lovely outside. I brought Jess's art and painting things. That was usually a good way to keep her busy. That would buy me a couple of hours at least. After that, I brought all her cooking toys, and those were her favourites, so I knew they would keep her occupied. She has to have gotten her fascination with food from Alan. She certainly hasn't got it from me. But it turned out it was me that got bored and restless first. After a couple of hours, I decided to take a walk up to the local charity shop. I loaded up a couple of carrier bags with the OK stuff and walked up there with Jess with a promise of a cake from the bakery. The old ladies were as lovely as you'd expect and quickly got nosy about who I was and if I was moving into the area. They then taught my socks off for about ten minutes while Jess got very annoyed and started to get grumpy. I seriously considered not buying her cake after all as punishment. I got them to give me a number for a local charity that would do house collections, 
so it wasn't a trip in vain. We did get some cakes after Jess was made to say sorry, and then we went back to the house. And wouldn't you know it, not more than a few minutes after we'd arrived, there was a knock at the door. I did start to think about calling the police. This was bordering on harassment. I, of course, decided to ignore it. We ate the cakes together, but it was soon back to work. I got back to sorting things out in the kitchen. It really was the biggest hoard of junk you ever saw. I was working into the afternoon. Jess fell asleep on her own without me having to put her up for a nap. But then I couldn't find my phone, and that was something Jess might have picked up and put down somewhere. I searched everywhere and couldn't find it. I started to get really wound up when there came another knock at the door. I was in the hallway right next to it when it happened, so I grabbed the latch and opened the door fast, no time for them to run. I swung it open and screamed in their faces, What the hell do you think you're playing at? But instead of a group of kids, I frightened the living wits out of this tiny old man, well-dressed and silver-haired. I think I almost shouted him off the doorstep. I apologised quickly and told him that kids were constantly knocking on the door and that they were driving me crazy. A little unnerved, he told me that he'd spoken to the old ladies at the charity shop and they'd mentioned me. He worked for a small charity that did pickups and he wanted to give me some of the bags they used for collections. I could just leave them on the front step and they'd get them. God, I felt so guilty. I said sorry about a hundred times, but I could still see that I'd shaken the poor man up. I took the bags and went back inside. What's wrong with this place? I found my phone outside on the patio. How on earth had it even got out there? Even if I'd taken it out, which I was sure I hadn't, I wouldn't leave it on the floor. Jess could have done it, but surely I'd have heard if she'd gone outside. And the knocking. I asked the old man if he'd seen kids around, and he said he hadn't seen any. He said it might be the students. But they seemed a bit above knockdown ginger to me. They had more exciting ways to create trouble like at the tattoo and sex toy store, for starters. I'd missed a call from Alan. I thought about telling him about all the stuff that had gone on, but he was so stressed with work. He didn't really have time to talk, he was just checking in. He asked me how I was liking the place. I was a bit cagey, said it felt weird there, but struggled to explain it. It didn't seem like much. Kids playing tricks, things going missing. Not when you spoke about it. Besides, I knew how keen he was and I didn't want to upset him. But I was starting to freak out and was really not seriously considering moving in for the long term. We didn't talk for very long. It was late and Jess had woken up. I turned on the oven to heat a pizza I'd bought when, again, there was a knock at the door. Was there really nothing else for kids to do in this town? It wouldn't be the old man again. I'd well and truly scared him off. I'm not answering, I said to myself. I'm going to ignore it properly ignore it. Not let it get me all hot and bothered. I cooked the pizzas and watched a Disney film with Jess before putting her to bed properly. She swore blind that she hadn't touched my phone and I couldn't bring myself to blame her, but who else could have moved it? I stayed up a little late, but I was still on edge. I thought I'd heard another knock at the door, but I wasn't sure. I was getting all wound up about nothing. They'd soon get tired of it. They'd soon leave me alone. The next morning I planned to drive over to Truro. I was desperate to get out of the house, and if I could take a few more bags of rubbish to some charity shops, I could use it as a good excuse to go there. But it was a disastrous trip from the start. It was a wet, miserable day, and traffic into town was terrible. Some kind of accident was mentioned on the radio. And Jess was a nuisance all day. 
I found the car keys amongst the toys that morning after a long search, so I knew she was the one who was picking things up and moving them about. She denied it and we had an argument, so she was grumpy and moody all day. And because I wasn't expecting rain when I packed, neither of us had any proper wet weather clothes. We gave up on the trip and came back just after lunch. As I was putting our clothes in the dryer, there was another knock at the door. I'm not answering it, I said out aloud, and went back to drying my hair. Jess was getting changed in her bedroom upstairs, and I started to make her some sandwiches. There was a knock at the door again. Still not going to answer, I said quietly. But this time it doesn't stop. They knocked again and again, and they didn't stop knocking. It went on and on and on, and it started to get louder and louder and louder. They were pounding on the door, banging their fists against it. I screamed. I was so angry. I wasn't going to put up with this. I ran to the door, the pounding still getting louder. I threw it open and yelled, What the hell is wrong with you? The second the door opened, the knocking stopped. I was yelling at an empty street. There was nobody there. Nobody anywhere near. I was breathing heavily. Something was wrong, very wrong. How could they have gotten away so quickly? The knocking had just stopped in an instant. It wasn't possible. I descended the steps and walked into the street. I looked up and down to see if there was anyone, but there was no one. How could they be doing this? I suddenly felt very cold. I was totally freaked out. The sky was grey and dark. It was gloomy and deathly silent. Not even a car on the road in the distance. It was unbearably quiet. It was as if I was the only person within a mile. It was like a ghost town. And then I heard the door creak behind me. I spun around and saw it suddenly slam shut. I almost jumped out of my shoes in shock. I raced up the steps and tried to pull it open, but the bolt had sprung and locked it from the inside. Hey, I shouted, pounding on the door, giving it a kick. It was locked firm and didn't budge. Helpless, I started to shout, Jess. Jess, Jess, honey, mum's outside. Mummy's outside. I pounded on the door with both hands. Jessica, open the door. Then I heard screaming, terrifying shrieking coming from inside the house. It was Jess screaming. I would have known that sound anywhere. She was frightened, petrified, screaming for her life. Jessica, I cried. I hit, pushed and kicked the door, tried to ram it with my shoulder, but it didn't budge an inch and caused me to slip and fall down the stairs. I landed on my side, grazing my leg and twisting my ankle. Still, she was screaming. I never heard her make such a noise, not even when she was a baby. I ran as fast as I could round the side of the house to get to the garden. The gate door was on the latch and I couldn't open it from this side. Without thinking, I charged at it, ran right at it with my shoulder, giving it everything I could. The latch broke off as I hit it. I tripped and fell, crashing to the ground in a shower of splinters. I'd hurt my shoulder, scraped my palms, but I couldn't stop. She was still going, still screeching, shrieking, crying for help. I couldn't stop. I got right back on my feet and dashed round to the patio doors. They were locked. I tried to yank them open, but when I couldn't, I went straight to the rockery and picked up the first heavy stone I could get my hands on. I threw it through the door window. It shattered and I jumped through, cutting my arm and shoulder on glass still hanging in the frame. The screaming had stopped. I ran into the living room. Jessica! I shrieked, and then I heard the sound of a toilet flushing. I rushed to the bottom of the stairs and she was there, up on the landing. She was rubbing her tired eyes. I stood watching in shock. She was fine. What was the noise, mummy? She said. I ran up the stairs, hoisted her up and held her so tight. God, I held her so tight. She was oblivious. 
She had no idea what had happened. I held her tightly for so long, the relief, I can't even describe it. I thought I was going to come in and find her dead, beaten, throttled or worse. But she was okay. After all that, she was okay. Mummy, you're bleeding. I had blood on my clothes, cuts on my legs. I started to cry. It's okay, sweetie, it's okay. As I stood there holding her, my eyes caught sight of the front door. It was now wide open, thrown open, all the way back on its hinges. I walked down the stairs slowly with Jessica in my arms. I put her down and then slammed the door shut. I leant back against it, breathing heavily. Whatever it was, whatever had been in the house, it was gone now and I wasn't going to let it back in. Then I remembered the patio door. I had nothing to cover the smashed window, nothing to put over it. I panicked, I got all my things together. I told Jessica to get all her things together too. I left stuff behind and I never went back for it. We went straight to the car and drove straight back to London that night. We just plain bolted for it. Alan and Dad didn't know what to make of the story, but I was too distressed for them to not take me seriously, and I was in some serious pain and cut and bruised all over. Dad went back to the house himself to sort out the patio door. As you might have guessed, we decided not to take the house. Then a few days later, Jessica, who was confused and didn't really know or understand what had happened, she was drawing and painting again. I watched her paint and then I noticed in one of her pictures she'd painted a garden and was colouring in a rock wall she'd already sketched. There was a head peering over the wall, the head of a small boy, I suddenly realised what it was and I asked her, Is that the house in Cornwall? She nodded and then I pointed to the head and asked, Who's that? She said that's the boy that kept hiding. And that he's sad now. Because he has no one left to play with. It's thought that the name Knockdown Ginger comes from an old English rhyme. This rhyme goes, Ginger, Ginger, broke a window. Hit the window crack. The baker came out to give him a clout and landed on his back. Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. This podcast is written, presented and produced by David Paul Nixon. Today's story features in the book 11 New Ghost Stories, available from Amazon, iTunes and other major book retailers. This podcast is entirely self-funded and produced, you can probably tell which means any support you can offer counts enormously. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it a review on whichever platform you listen to it on, and please subscribe to hear upcoming releases. You can find out more about New Ghost Stories at newghoststories.com, and you can find new stories and the latest content on my substack, davidpornixon.substack.com. You can also read the latest updates from me on Twitter, at New Ghost Stories. Next time on the New Ghost Stories podcast... We visit a clock museum and discover a terrifying secret when all the clocks...